Hello and welcome to A Moon State of Crypto Brainstorm, where we come together once a week to discuss the latest trends and analysis in the crypto world. All opinions expressed by A Moon staff or guests of the podcast are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment advice. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. My name is Hani Rashwan. I'm your host, and I hope you enjoyed this week's session. This week, we'll be talking about consumable digital commodities. Through the invention of blockchain technology, we've been able to democratize digital commodities. This includes things like the provision of storage space, and we've also been able to create new markets for them. Today, we're pleased to have Mr. Steve McKeon, a partner at the Collaborative Fund in San Francisco, as well as a professor of finance at the University of Oregon. He's joining us for our weekly brainstorm to share his views on this new part of the asset class, as well as some of the thoughts they, uh, his firm have shared over Medium and other blog posts. From the Immune team, we have our president, Ophelia, as well as Greg from the business development team. So let's start the conversation. Steve, I think you guys at Collaborative wrote a, a really interesting blog post called Consumable Digital Commodities back in July of this year. Um, I think the best way to, to start is perhaps talking a little bit more about the theory uh, behind that and the thesis you have formed around the topic. So if you could just summarize that a little bit in terms of your uh, basic thoughts on the the terms in this space. We can start off there. That sounds great. So thanks for having me. Um, I think it, it makes sense to start by just sort of defining what we mean by digital commodities, because you know for those who are active in the crypto space, you'll be familiar. You know we often refer to Bitcoin as digital gold, so it's sort of a, a store of value commodity. Uh, which is typical of most uh, precious metals. Uh, often there's an industrial use, uh, but frequently sort of the concept of store of value is the primary value driver uh, as investable assets. But if you step back and you think about many of the other commodities beyond precious metals, uh, the majority of them are uh, consumable. So we use this term consumable uh, digital commodities. They're sort of inputs to production. So these are things like oil or sugar or wheat, and there are producers of these commodities. There's consumers of these commodities. They're not necessarily meant as a store of value. They're meant to be consumed and they're meant as an input to production. And so um, the, very important in terms of financial transactions around these, right? So we've got derivatives markets, futures, forwards, uh, billions of dollars changes hands on a daily basis. So we stepped back and we said, all right, you know, everyone's talking about Bitcoin and this idea of a store value commodity, but are there going to be other digital commodities uh, that come out of sort of the, the digital re revolution and the idea that more and more goods and services are digitized? And so we stepped back and we thought, you know, what, what are the digital products and services that are used uh, as inputs of production? sort of in the new production function of the 21st century. 
So the idea is that data, it needs to be stored, it needs to be processed, it needs to be transmitted. And data really is the fundamental building block of many of these products. So if you think about Google or you think about Facebook or sort of anything that has digital content, um, that's all really built on data, right? So the idea is that these needs, you know, storage, processing, transmittal are going to form the basis of digital commodities uh, in the years to come and that there's going to be markets that form around them. So again, there's uh, producers, there's consumers, uh, they aren't farmers, right? And they aren't manufacturing companies. They are potentially people with excess uh, storage or they're uh, entities that can do processing of one type or another. And the consumers might be those that are producing products that are primarily data-based. And so that is the, the general thesis. And so the, the term consumable commodities, I think, is super interesting to me because basically what we're, what we're focused on and looking at are those commodities where the intrinsic value is most of uh, the, value, the end value of the product. You mentioned oil or sugar or wheat or what have you. Um, you're not talking about, say, gold, which is derived from intrinsic value plus whatever society will deem is the worth of also its store of value function. So we're only talking here about uh, consumable commodities. Is that accurate? That's correct. One of the things that I think is uh, is an interesting thread to pull on is what exactly is the definition or what constitutes a commodity? Um, one of the things that you mentioned, I think, is something on uh, essentially that the good is homogenous and the only difference between it and other uh, uh, same samples of it are price. That's exactly right. So the, I think the, the key point here is that uh, whoever's consuming the good is going to focus only on the price of the good rather than the source of the good. And the reason for that is because the good has to be completely fungible. So no differentiation among sort of any characteristic that matters uh, from one good or service to the next. And so the, what happens if you actually reach this point of commoditization is that suppliers become price takers rather than price makers. Uh, this is something we observe in commodity markets. And so, you know, markets move towards perfect competition and price typically drops. And so this is the really key feature. But of course, many of the goods and services, the digital goods and services we see today aren't commoditized yet. Um, they are still differentiated based on brand or based on various attributes. So I, th I think that's the key thing here, right? Is that if we think about digital commodities, we're talking about data and other things like that. And I'm, I'm reminded of the, the Economist had a cover, I think, a couple of years ago saying the most valuable, um, the most valuable uh, source of uh, wealth in this next century is not going to be oil, but it's going to be data. However, even all the companies that have set up these kinds of commodities that you mentioned, like AWS or Dropbox, etc., are predominantly uh, valued off of their brand equity versus anything else that is that is commoditized. 
because there are alternatives to um, AWS. There are alternatives to Dropbox. In often cases, they actually might beat them on price, but the the trusted brand aspect of it keeps coming back. And we see this in crypto as well with, say, Coinbase at its, at its minimum is a wallet provider. Um, you can get wallets um, from other sources at reduced costs or even free, yet the brand equity is there. So where do you see the jump? As you mentioned, I, I don't think this is the world as we see it today. Where do you see the jump or what factors will have to occur for us to make this leap? So uh, I think one is cost, as you mentioned. I, I think there are alternatives to AWS and to Dropbox. Uh, the difference in cost perhaps is not vast enough um, in terms of the other centralized models. What we're going to see when these become commodities is a massive decline in prices, right? So SIA, which is um, a, a portfolio holding of collaborative, uh, if you look at the cost model there, it's, it's like 10x cheaper than AWS, Right, so to store like one terabyte of data, SIA is about a buck or two a month. AWS is like twenty three dollars, and the difference there, as you mentioned, is primarily brand equity, right? Which really boils down to trust. And so, I, I think trust is one of the key features here. It, I mean, it can't be understated how important that is in terms of a, an Amazon or a Dropbox to have pricing power in these markets, and so. You know, the idea is that you trust Amazon to, you know, execute the code and to not mess with the code. And and you trust Dropbox that when you put a file there, you're going to be able to retrieve it sort of on demand without fail 100% of the time, right? So if it was, even if it was free, but you could only retrieve your files 98% of the time, that would still not be acceptable to the vast majority of consumers, right? It has to be without fail nearly 100% of the time. It would be like a doctor whose success rate in the OR is only 75%. Very unhelpful. Exactly, right? So e even small differentials in that ability to perform the service uh, will have a, take a massive dent in terms of trust. And so the thing we're seeing, though, when you incentivize a market with tokens or with some sort of cryptocurrency, the idea is that you can move trust. You can sort of like outsource trust to the protocol. So you're not in the, in the current environment, you're trusting Amazon or you're trusting Dropbox. You're trusting a centralized entity, typically a corporation uh, in, in most of these instances. When you look at something like SIA or you look at a network, you're outsourcing trust effectively to the code. Right. So the this common phrase that, you know, like Maneev and Ali and Chris Dixon have used is this idea of like you're moving from don't be evil. So when you think about Google or you think about Amazon, like we're trusting them not to be evil, right, not to do uh, sort of things that would be against our interests in terms of the data or the processing. Whereas when you trust a protocol, you're moving to can't be evil. It is literally uh, forbidden by the code to take certain types of actions. And so when you think about the ability to retrieve a file, you can incentivize or sort of enforce through cryptography uh, the ability to deter or prohibit cheating on the supply side or sort of any action that would be um, against the interests of the demand side or, or the consumer. And so it, it really comes down to kind of creating a standardized product 
And so in the article, I mentioned that when you look at the traditional commodities, so if you take corn or wheat or some sort of agricultural product, the U.S. government is the one that creates standards for those products that says, all right, anyone who's going to engage in this market as a supplier, you know, the corn has to have, you know, a certain maybe moisture content or, or whatever else, certain attributes. And so it standardizes so you actually can get a commodity good. Whereas in, in these markets, the standardization is going to be enforced by the protocol itself. I buy that point completely. I think it's um, it's really well summarized by Munib's point of it's no longer uh, don't be evil, it's can't be evil, uh, especially with code since we can audit it. I guess the thing that I think about then is the drawbacks from such a model. So let's say we, we get to this world, it's coming soon, where we will at least be able technically to aggregate all of this uh, unused supply, reduce the cost significantly. We also have incredible advantages from all of these different, I guess, networks of commodities, uh, whether that be AWS or Google or Facebook. Um, one of the most notable ones is the aspect of, um, of network effects. And one of the uh, added benefits that we would get from trusted brands is economies of scales that then lead to greater network effects where every single addition to this more centralized, more, uh, more um, direct network, um, it actually strengthens the underlying. Um, how do you see that specific aspect or other advantages of the current system that, that we are running on today? How do you see that changing with the advent of, um, of more um, consumable digital commodities? Yeah, so I guess that, you know, maybe the bigger picture question is this idea of moving from a centralized provider of a good to a market-based system. And as you mentioned, there can be drawbacks. And what it has to do a lot with is kind of regulating supply and demand, right? So you see this. So let even though it is a centralized company, take something like Uber, right, uh, versus the taxi company. So with taxis, you you know, there's certain frictions in terms of how you hail them and their availability and, and other things which have made the ride hailing services like Uber and Lyft so successful, but the one thing you do get with, with taxis is price certainty, right? Like you always know, again, it's regulated by the government, but you always know how much it's going to cost when you get in the cab and, and take a ride of whatever distance. Whereas with Uber, because it's more of a supply and demand-based system, you know, you get the so-called surge pricing, where when demand is vastly outstripping supply, uh, you get these big spikes in price. So if you want an Uber and it's, you know, just after midnight on New Year's Eve, uh, or it's Fourth of July after the fireworks end, or something of this nature, um, all of a sudden the price could be three x, you know, what you would normally pay. And so this, I think, in some particular use cases, is is one of the drawbacks of of market based systems. I mean, the good news is that it sort of balances out supply and demand because as the price increases, of course, more supply is going to come online. This is the idea with surge pricing is that, you know, if the price increases, you're going to get a whole bunch more drivers out on the road uh, picking up rides because now it's, you know, economically incentivizes them to do so. But as a consumer, it does create some volatility around price, 
which you know creates some uncertainty around cost. And generally, you know, economists will will tell you that uncertainty is almost always a, a bad thing, right? In terms of uh, humans like to avoid it. And so, I think this is one of the drawbacks of moving from a centralized system to a market based system. So, I'm curious, sort of, to see it. The, the corollaries between traditional commodities and what you're, what you're envisioning in this space. Um, if we think about the sort of traditional commodities world, you're very much dealing with a market-based system. The price uncertainty is, for the most part, baked into how people interact with that system, especially large commercial buyers. Um, and those markets are typically characterized, and we can sort of leave gold aside to some degree because it has some different characteristics given its use as a hedge. But things like oil, steel, corn are typically used um, you know, by large commercial entities and are typically very focused on what they're used to create, right? The, that, that steel is only really as useful as the tanker that you use it you build out of it and then sell to somebody or whatever that that is. They have a tendency to be thought of in terms of more primary inputs. And so when we think about that in this space, I wonder how, you know, really some of the pricing things you're talking about, while they're certainly relevant for individual consumers, I wonder how relevant they are and how different they really are from existing commodities markets where, you know, a producer that's building oil tankers is buying steel in large quantities and taking some market risk on the availability um, and the pricing of that steel at some point in the future. Yeah, so I actually don't see them as being that different. So again, it's, you know, think about if you were uh, a company that was using a large amount of, let's say, compute power or hash power, what you can do is you can enter just like if you're, a you know, say you're Kellogg's and you use a lot of corn, right? Because you... Uh, produce cereals that where that's a primary input, you're not just going to go buy off the spot market all the time and be subject to all this price volatility. What you're going to do is you're going to enter forward contracts uh, with large producers. And so this is one of the ways that large market participants mitigate uh, this price risk. So I think whether it's, um, you know, Delta, right? So Delta, the airline, uh, in order to mitigate, price, you know, one of their main inputs, of course, is oil uh, because they use a lot of gas running this network of airlines. And so what they did is actually went out and and bought an oil refinery, right? So sort of vertically integrated. Um, I think that when you're a large consumer of a commoditized product, you're always going to try to take steps to mitigate some of that risk. And I don't think it matters whether it's corn or oil or whether it's compute power or maybe somebody using uh, live peer for transcoding, you know, there are all of these sort of basic digital inputs uh, that companies are using or entities are using, maybe to use a more general term, uh, as inputs to production. And I think to the extent that they are very large consumers of those, they will start to use derivative products and other sort of risk management techniques to hedge any price risk out uh, over you know, some period of time of, of their consumption. But so I, I completely see that. And I think that's, you know, very much what we see in traditional markets and, and that makes complete sense. But I think one of the issues here is that while there are certainly people who are making um, bets on how this market's going to evolve and how, um, which digital commodities are going to be valuable and which platforms are really going to be used as those primary inputs and 
um, buying accordingly, a lot of the infrastructure needed to do those kinds of contracts or to manage um, that type of long-term exposure, especially if you sit on the production side. So if you're actually, you know, a large consumer of these primary inputs, a lot of that sort of has yet to develop um, through a combination of regulatory issues and, um, quite frankly, development of the market. And I think, to me at least, that seems like it's going to be a critical piece in order to get the sort of current, more fragmented um, economy that we're seeing into something that trades more similarly to a commodity market, especially as you get away from the large assets, sort of like Ethereum or something like that, which do have some of these hedging products available. I agree. I think there's still a lot of market development to occur. There's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built. I mean, we are seeing forward contracts for some of these commodities. So for example, hash power sold on a forward contract. So say you're a miner, Right, and basically, what you're doing is you're turning hash power into uh, block rewards, and you want to hedge out some price risk for your production. Again, it's effectively a commodity. Um, there are entities that are purchasing, you know, on forward contracts a, a portion of that hash power, and as that expands to you know beyond sort of proof of work mining to things like large consumers that are using it for AI or for other reasons. I think we're also going to see forward contracts develop. But as you said, the markets for those derivative products are really not fully developed at this point. They're primarily done uh, sort of over the counter. Yeah. And I think it seems like for now, most of them are fairly, um, let's call it bilaterally focused as opposed to easily tradable, right? They are, they're really more like purchase agreements than they are forwards in the way we think about them in the commodities market, where you can actually you know buy, buy and sell those on the open market in a way that could theoretically be used not only for hedging um, prices, but also for developing a specific investment thesis uh, or developing a uh, you know specific investment strategy around that commodity. I totally agree. Uh, we really have not seen a ton of market. To, I mean, really, these markets themselves, uh, for especially on the consumable digital commodities, are relatively young uh, and. We have not seen so. I mean, they themselves are working to get traction, and certainly derivative products based uh, on those primary spot markets uh, have yet to develop. Yeah, and I, I think part of that, to me at least, reads as there's sort of this gap between uh, really a core understanding of this technology and a core understanding of how this sort of new type of commodity sh- trades. And having the real tech stack to manage that. Um, And I think that partially comes out of the fact that a lot of the legacy players who would maybe have been, you know, significant in writing some of these contracts just don't have the technical capabilities to do so. Um, Both in terms of understanding the asset class, but also in terms of the actual ability to buy, sell, trade, custody, any of these products in a a meaningful way. Um, And I think that's, and that's something we think about all the time, obviously, uh, in terms of how we run ATPs and how we manage c- collateral positions and how we actually manage the internal infrastructure of complex financial products in the sector. It's not something that's a particularly, let's call it broadly developed set of tools at this stage. And I think there are, there are a few people, including us, who are working on how to make that process of actually creating these pack, essentially packaged and easily transferable securitization products on top of some of these digital commodities. And I think that's um, an important 
distinction and sort of I think what we're getting at here is that really the, the securitization process is important in terms of establishing commodities as um, as a market. You, you really still need that securities element, which is these derivative contracts, which is other and other investable vehicles. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we see this as just an enormous opportunity. Uh, I mean, it's a huge part of our investment thesis, this idea that a lot of the major institutions aren't diving in to what we think is going to be a huge sea change uh, in, in the way investable assets, whether they be consumable digital commodities, store value digital commodities, you know, or various other things that are happening in the ecosystem. Um, they are, you know, we believe they're going to be caught flat footed and there's going to be a lot of uh, entities that rise up to kind of bridge these two worlds between traditional markets uh, and the crypto markets. Uh, and we're excited to, you know, invest sort of along that vertical and along that thesis. And I think to your point, there are a lot of new entities um, that more than make up for, I would say, the giants in the space uh, today that might be ignoring it. I mean, I think the rise of um, contract exchanges, uh, futures contracts exchanges like BitMEX just in the past 12, 18, 24 months has, has been nothing short of... Uh, astronomically impressive, right? And in terms of the volumes that they um, are able to do, I think BitMEX is now over a trillion dollar run rate in, in, in contracts, um, a trillion dollars worth uh, annualized, which is which is absolutely nuts when you think about it. Um, one of the, uh, I, I love talking about commodities because we, we often have such a, such an easier way of explaining um, the entire crypto asset class and its promises to folks that understand commodities or come from a commodities background. So I absolutely love looking at, at the parallels of this. Um, one, one, one side road here that I've, I've been thinking about, in the, um, in the post you outlined something uh, with respect to I suppose the lack of attractiveness historically in commodity products. Um, you say something along the lines of venture capital uh, used to think commodities, uh, or maybe still does think commodities are very unattractive investments, but perhaps in crypto uh, they could become attractive investments today since we're talking about uh, investing in aggregators of that uh, commodities. And I, I think a lot about that because um, I do come from a payments background and sort of my career of about 10 years now um, has involved seeing Stripe and Square aggregate what we thought was desperate, small, long tail, perhaps commoditized forms of, of consumers, of, of companies, etc. So is the real benefit here, in your opinion, the aggregation of these consumable digital commodities versus anything that is inherent about them? And will the will the actual winners in the space be the ones not just to reduce the cost 10x or 100x, but those that then aggregate um, that sum and then do something interesting with it? Absolutely. And so I think it, it is the the aggregators or, you know, as the phrase we like to use is more like the ones that are creating the markets for it. 
So they're they're not so much aggra- I mean, data aggravators is a is a phrase that's often also used to entities like Google and and Facebook. And I think what's different here is they're not aggregating it in a centralized way. What they're really doing is a, is they're creating a market uh, for the demand and the supply to aggregate on top of. And so we do see that as the opportunity. And, you know, as you said, in the past, you know, we look at a lot of deals and in a, it, we're always worried about defensibility, right? Because often we're looking at things relatively early and you have to try and kind of like look around corners and say, all right, but yes, you know, several years from now, uh, if this really becomes a thing and there's lots of new entrants and maybe this particular good or service becomes commoditized, you know, then it's going to be hard for this company to have pricing power and uh, and market power and and hard to to build a lot of value, right? Which is what we need to do for our investors is find things that are going to accrue value. And so, generally, um, you know, investing in the supplier of a commoditized product uh, is something that that uh, investors avoid. And so. I think I think it's important to draw the distinction here that the things we're investing in are the points of aggregation or the markets specifically uh, where supply and demand are going to meet uh, and the price is going to drop, uh, but the markets are going to benefit because they are uh, the point at which all of the supply and the demand connects. I have some thoughts, but before that, um, I think Greg has something. Well, I have a separate question altogether uh, in terms of how some of these platforms work. Um, Basically, one of the things I was curious about was uh, from a UI and UX perspective, specifically as it relates to uh, the decentralized storage platforms such as SIA, uh, how much work do you think these platforms have to do in order to improve the ease of use? as it relates or compared to uh, the likes of Dropbox or uh, Google Drive? Because I feel like that's one of the biggest things that's holding them back at the moment um, is in terms of getting more people to, or from an adoption point of view. And I guess I guess also to add on to that, um, I think we can very quickly talk also about what, what are the current limitations of commodities? We've done, we, we've touched on this thread a little bit, but in general, how do we see things like the current limitations actually being fixed in the in the medium and, and long term? Yeah, so these are great points. You know, I view there being two uh, main frictions to adoption. One we've already touched on, which is trust, right? And that's going to happen slowly. Trust diffuses through a population. You know, not all at once. Uh, it takes time for for trust to be earned, you know, they say it's, you know, earned in drops, lost in buckets. Um, and so that's, that's literally just a matter of time for enough users to use the platforms to realize that you can retrieve uh, the data or, you know, you can access the service with very high reliability, similar to what you'd get on other platforms. Uh, but the other point, which Greg brought up, and I think is really important, is the user interfaces. And so I would say this is even a bigger issue than simply consumable digital commodities. And I think this expands really to kind of everything in the crypto space, which is, you know, most people are not using these products and services because they're built on blockchain. They're using them because blockchain enables some feature 
or some cost savings or some other thing that they desire, right? But if there's friction around the interface in terms of like, how do they access it? How do they use it? Is it interoperable with everything the way some of the other centralized uh, products are? If you fail on those counts, uh, then you're sort of not going to get people over the hump, even if there's something they desire. If it's too hard to use or too hard to access, uh, it's going to be a real friction to mass adoption. And so I would say just as a general point, trust is one piece, but the user interface and interoperability and just ease of use uh, is the other really, really big piece that's going to need uh, continued improvement, uh, continued improvement, like across the board in, in crypto, in order to sort of bring the masses in. No, absolutely, and I think um, a solid evidence of this point is one of the uh, commoditized uh, uh, suppliers that we were talking about in the crypto space being Coinbase, predominantly uh, winning out of the UI and the UX which they have made simpler than um, any of their competition. Yeah, so I think one other element uh, worth thinking about in this context is also data reliability. You know, what we're talking about commoditization and commodities markets, a, a key element there is making sure that you have data, data on all of this and, not, and the ability to actually um, have reliable, transparent, well-sourced data in the space. Um you know, has come into question in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, the, the work that Bitwise has done, um, in addition to, quite frankly, just I think issues a lot of people have with day to day trading of digital commodities. And I think when you think about this in terms of a broader view of creating interoperability, creating um, a broader network of these types of products, I think this is an incredibly important point, especially in the context of how challenging. Um, this type of data collection and this type of data aggregation across multiple segments or sectors can be even in traditional markets where the processes are a little bit more well-established. Um, I, I think maybe Greg would probably be in a better place to speak to this than I can, but the actual infrastructure to even get data on how to trade anything in traditional markets is an extremely onerous process. And I think that that's an important and sort of key element to making um, to making a, a commoditized market for these types of products really work. Couldn't agree more. And analytics is actually another vertical we're really interested in and we're investing in actively. We have a position in uh, Flipside, uh, which you could kind of think of as like um, Google Analytics. So they'll work directly with the, the projects, right, to help them understand kind of what's happening on chain. But I think there's also more, um, there's market level providers of data, whether it be Coinmetrics or Into the Block or various others. Uh, and the rise of these analytics platforms to be able to actually tell us what's happening in terms of where are things trading, what are all the metrics that we would care about as investors is going to be really important for the development of the space. Uh, and so I couldn't agree more with, with what you described. And if, if I'm not mistaken, Greg joined us from, from Bloomberg and you've had firsthand experience with some of the challenges with respect to data integration. So I think just to illustrate this point a little bit further, can you can you touch on some of that experience if you can? Uh, definitely. From my time at Bloomberg, I noticed uh, the issues when it came to the data integration in terms of the data that we're offering to people, 
uh, one of the facts that are, it was just in it of itself, it was just very costly to get the data because it's entirely centralized owned just by one single entity is usually the stock exchanges. I think it will definitely be very interesting as the data becomes more distributed and easier to use. Um, I could see a lot of benefits happening with that. The only concerns I have at the moment, or it's not really concerns, I'm just, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical in terms of how long it will take um, some of these new um, upcoming platforms to get to the levels where you see some of the centralized, um, you see some of the centralized entities are today. Because you know that in terms of getting like quality and reliable data, so... I think it will likely take a, yeah, a longer time for sure. No, I, I think one of the, the questions is also there's a way to maybe do this better, right? I, I think when we think about data and analytics in traditional markets, um, it, it's both expensive to aggregate that data. I think what Greg's referring to is literally you have to connect to each exchange individually. There's no way to do that. And data aggregation services are actually very expensive. Bloomberg charges an enormous amount of money for data and actually tears out um, you know, whether that data is real time or not and, and how that data is actually delivered. And each of those things sort of bears an incremental cost. Um, and so it's been an issue in traditional markets around, you know, banks and how to think about allocating and, and you know, do you use FactSet, do you use Bloomberg? How do you actually manage this data flow and how do you get access to a wide range of robust data? And to some extent, the digitization, digitalization of commodities uh, and this sort of increasing space of digital commodities actually provide to a large extent, simplified infrastructure, you can actually um, discoverability in terms of transactions is, is much higher in, in terms of you know public blockchains and the ability for people to aggregate that data and, and run their own analytics um, and potentially avoid some of the pitfalls that uh, the legacy platforms have relied on. One of the things that I find absolutely fascinating is that even if you're an issuer of a security, there's a very good chance you're actually buying data on your own products back from some of these aggregators because of how challenging it is to integrate with um, either primary sources or, quite frankly, if you have multiple primary sources of data, that can be an enormous engineering issue. And I think that that's, a, um, that's something that when we talk about data reliability in terms of crypto assets or digital commodities, um, we sort of have a tendency to gloss over that, that that infrastructure in legacy environments, while certainly robust, is extremely onerous. And I think this is another area where some of these, um, let's call it uh, markets that can develop around new products um, and you know generating that interoperability that you were talking about can actually tremendously with reducing overhead costs across the entire ecosystem of financial products, not just purely um, blockchain-related products. I would agree with that. I think that's a really important point, is that the if you look at the way data is housed in the traditional system, it's in these silos uh, that can be difficult to aggregate and access really just generally. And that paradigm really changes in the blockchain environment. I mean, even... Even aside from market data, like look at a company like Broadridge. Broadridge has built a multi-billion dollar company, mostly just helping companies understand who their own shareholders are uh, and communicate them for things like proxy votes and whatnot. 
Um, it, it's just, it, I mean, it's almost unbelievable that you think that a company has to pay so much money really just to access records on their own shareholders. And so all of that type of thing is going to go away as more and more securities are tokenized and we have more visibility um, down through the chain of ownership. It's going to allow uh, data to flow a lot more freely. I think, not as you said, not only for commodities, uh, but really for securities and for financial instruments generally. Broadridge is such a fascinating company. I'm so happy that you brought that up. Um, I've actually been... Um, I've been running into a couple of companies that are uh, being funded to try and take away from that because in addition to not doing much, they also have an absolute monopoly on this space, uh, which is just, again, uh, truly, truly uh, interesting. So um, before we wrap up, because I see us approaching um, 41 minutes, uh, one of the things that I, I would be incredibly remiss to to forget about is uh, as we talk about um, the markets that will develop here, I think one of the most f uh, fascinating tweet storms by Naval um, centered around his, his simple one-sentence thesis of blockchains will replace networks with markets, which I think we'll put in the description of the, of the podcast so that everyone can take a look um, and people should, should read it in, in length. But Steve, one of the things that uh, you said that that um, uh, stuck out a bit for me was that you said, to be very clear, we're not investing in the aggregator. We prefer saying we're in investing or focusing on the points of aggregation. One of the points that Naval makes in his tweet storms is on um, how nonsensical it will be for... Um, you know, a blockchain not to have its own native currency, how nonsensical it would be for it to be centralized or to be controlled by a sovereign or a company, etc. In the future that you are uh, painting here with the blog post and the, and the overall thesis, do you think that we will fail to uh, see aggregators? Is it mostly going to be these nodes and points of aggregation versus someone who actually owns the network, so to speak? So I come down kind of somewhere in the middle on this one, right? So I, I do think we are going to see a movement away from data aggregators uh, towards protocols that aggregate data. And so those aren't going to be corporate forms. Uh, they're going to have their own governance models. They are potentially going to have a native currency affiliated with them. Um, but I also believe there's still going to be a role for corporations, Right. Because I think that often, you know, when you look at governance of these protocols, like it's not really totally figured out yet. And I think there's a lot of promise around things like DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations. Um, and but it's just still very early days. Right. So I think the short answer is I definitely think we're moving down the spectrum away from sort of the corporate form in the direction of a more decentralized form. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's not clear that we're going to go all the way to the other side of the spectrum where everything is decentralized either. I think there's going to be some use cases where some degree of centralization makes sense. And I think there's going to be other use cases, particularly where a market makes sense more than a single aggregator, uh, where you're going to see a more de decentralized sort of uh, form 
dominate that particular use case. Amazing. So you are you're less on the team that believes this will shake down to three to five um, networks, but rather this might be thousands or even millions of different iterations for different things. Yeah. So I guess you know you have to be very careful with semantics when you sort of describe these things because. You know, when we say how many networks will there be, a lot of people interpret that to be how many protocols will there be, right? Like how many base layers will there be? And I don't think it's clear yet how many base layers we need or will survive versus perhaps there being fewer number of base layers, but more networks built on top of the base layers. Just to be super clear, I yeah, I, I agree with you on I don't think we're going to need um, tens of thousands of base layers. I was more talking about the the end product being multiple, multiple iterations for different use cases on uh, a list of small base layers versus something uh, that is one size fits all. I think that's right. So the, I mean, maybe the, the one sentence kind of description there is I, I do believe we're going to see a proliferation of networks. Well, I think that's exactly what we see in traditional commodities, right? You're talking about there There are bulk commodities that people use that are, you know, the base layer, so to speak. But then there are also specialized varietals and people are willing to pay premiums for certain types of things. And we, within an umbrella term of a commodity, you can find multiple different types of um, sort of multiple different types of goods. And I think that that's something that, you know, we as a space shouldn't lose sight of when we think about. Um, digital commodities and digital consumables. The the reality here is that you know use oil for example. Um, oil from different regions can have slightly different properties and therefore slightly different pricing. Um, or you know grades of steel, um, etc. And and that can also sort of add to this. And I think that that's um, I think another way of describing the uh, phenomenon you're talking about in terms of proliferation. It's that there will obviously still be niche use cases that perhaps go beyond um, those base layers, which are the major markets. No, absolutely. I think the, I think it's really, it's, it's quite comforting knowing that there are historical parallels with respect to how commodities came about. And it's also a, a, a bit uh, scary, but intriguing at the same time, realizing that there will be vast differences in how the future forms, but we don't know exactly where. And yeah, that I think that that remains to be that remains to be seen. On that note, thank you so much uh, for um, for joining us, Steve. Thank you, Ophelia um, and Greg, for contributing. You can learn more about uh, Steve and uh, his fund at collaborativefund.com. They have a lot of really amazing uh, blog posts outlining some very interesting thoughts on crypto. Hopefully, we'll have Steve back to talk about a few more of them. Um, and on, on our end, we we spend a really long time thinking about how this all shakes out and how this is connected to things we might have seen in the past or um, what the nuances will end up being. You can take a look at uh, the stuff we are thinking about and publishing on amoon.com slash research. This was it from the Immune team. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or would like to see your topic on our next episode, reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. We'll see you next week.